Welcome to Interplay. This is Michael Shapiro, your host. Today I have a wonderful friend, conductor, composer, but I'll talk about that order in a second, Ivan Fischer. Hello, Ivan. How are you? Hello. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. You know, there are conductors who compose, and there are composers who conduct. Conductors who compose, Fritz Wengler, Walter, Klemperer, many in history. But there are composers who conduct, like Mahler, like Richard Strauss, like Ivan Fischer. And I want to go to that right away. Um, Ivan, this discussion is really about your music and what you have written. Now, I know you studied in Vienna with Swarovski, I think, conducting, but did you study composition early on? Before that, I did. When I was still in Budapest, and uh, this was between the age of um, 15 and 19, then I was at the conservatory, the Bela Bartók Conservatory in Budapest, and I studied cello and composition there. Then I moved to Vienna and uh, I started conducting and there wasn't really a composition class except there were a, a, a few composers who taught us various um, details of composition. Mm -hmm. I remember, for example, Friedrich Zerha, a very good uh, yes. Viennese composer he he taught us uh, notation how to write music then there was franz urbaner a very good other composer score reading and how to orchestrate so it's difficult to say i didn't have like one composition teacher but a number of different um details now it is very interesting because I think your composing totally infuses what you do as a musician, whether it's on the piano or leading an orchestra or, or administering the Budapest Festival Orchestra, because organization and a composer is the same as administering, very similar to administering a large group of people and founding it, creating a composition, creating an orchestra, mentoring younger people, like your extraordinary Nora Fisher, your daughter, who's an amazing singer. And on YouTube, there are two performances that I could find of you accompanying her. One, I think, on Dutch television, and the other one, uh, another uh, setting. And it's of a piece you wrote based on poetry of Rochel Korn, the Yiddish poet and short story writer who lived from 1898 to 1982, Anoik Kleit, for soprano and piano from 2009. Now, this was commissioned by the Committee of the Dutch Memorial Day in 2008, to commemorate the youngest victims of the Shoah. A million children were killed, murdered, and you wrote this piece. It is difficult to stop mourning. So, Ivan, speak to us about a nightlight. Yes, originally it was a commission by that uh, memorial committee, and I composed it for a choir. It ah. was originally a choral work, because there was a youth choir um, for whom the commission um, happened, and uh, that was the occasion. Mm -hmm. And it's performable with the choir, but I thought it takes away a little bit the, the personal attitude and the, 
freedom it needs because it's a little bit a, a chanson-like musical style. Very much. Which works better if it's freer, a little mm -hmm. bit rhythmical liberties. Yes. So immediately when I heard it with the choir, I thought I will make another version for one singer. Wonderful. And the second version became more well-known, which, which I often performed with my daughter, Nora, whom I had in mind for the, for the one voice arrangement. Well, the quality of her voice, certainly. You can hear it, and the way she interprets, the way she tr turns the phrase, everything she does. Let's talk about the form for a second, composer to composer. It is an A, B, A, B, A, B form, but each A and each B is different. The A is a Yiddish melody. It's a Jewish melody, no question, coming straight out of your soul. <laughs> and to this son of a klezmer, I got it immediately. The B section, however, is this kind of threnody, this kind of chant, almost liturgical, in your own voice, and it goes very different. Explain that, that A and that B to me, if you would. If you think about the text of this poem, um, the story, it becomes very clear. Mm. It's about a new dress. You put on the new dress after seven years of mourning. You put away the mourning dress and you put on your everyday dress. Yes. But it doesn't feel good, it hurts, it causes pain because it's difficult to stop mourning. This, yes. is, the, this is what basically the, the poem is about. Now, one part of it is, is like a narration, you say, you tell the story to the listener that after seven years of mourning, I put on the new dress. Mm -hmm. And this is what, what we, can, we could say it's a, it's a Yiddish-like chanson. It's, yeah. a, it's a Yiddish song style. Yeah. And then when you explore your own feelings, this is what you call the, the B section where you, you, you don't really find yourself, you don't find identity with yourself. And this is this searching, hovering notes where you are looking for the harmonies, even musically speaking. Where are we? It's a little losing the ground. Mm -hmm. And then you describe that it doesn't, it hurts, it doesn't feel right. The the buttons, the, the folds on the dress, everything reminds me on the morning. And then you go back to the narration, you repeat that after seven years, I put on a new dress. And then again, you explore your own feelings. So this, the structure of the song comes from these two attitudes in the poem. I want to talk to you next about something which is very dear to me. I studied conducting at the Manus College of Music with Carl Bamberger, who was an associate of Fritz Wengler and Walter and knew Klemper very, very well. And he was born in 1902, died in 1987-85. He was, of course, a refugee and got out in 1938 because he had Soviet imprints on his passport, having conducted the premiere of Shostakovich's first piano concerto, <laughs> among other things. But at his home, when he'd invite me and we'd have goulash zuppa and speak Viennese German, he would have people there from Prague and Budapest, all Jews from various different kinds of backgrounds, all born around the turn of the, the last century. 
they were all fans of Goethe and Rilke and Hilder and, and so forth, Go, you know, and, and Wagner. <laughs> but they were refugees, every one of them from the Shoah. You've had similar paradoxical uh, feelings with the composition of your great cantata, Eine Deutsch Yiddische Cantate, a German Jewish cantata, based on Yiddish folk song, Rilke, Goethe, and Avram Sutzkever, a Shoah victim. Duality, paradox. You've spoken about this a lot, but not with me, so I'm going to push you further than you've done publicly. So many of these Jews, all of them, these mostly upper-class cultured Jews who play music in the home, they were fascinated with German culture, but yet they were victims of it. So talk about this colliding of styles that you do in this wonderful, wonderful work, Ein Deutsch, Yiddish Kantate. This, this is precisely the paradoxical um, duality, what you described. Uh, when the Jews of Central Europe, many of them decided to leave religion around, around 1900 or probably a little earlier, and, and uh, started a lifestyle of an assimilated a secular but Jewish identity, then they still continued the natural intuitive behavior mm -hmm. of the Jewish people, which was to have an adoration for something, a spiritual value. Yes. So imagine maybe the father father's main spiritual source was god mm -hmm. but the son who stepped out of the religion needed another god another spiritual idol yes. so this generation turned to culture mm -hmm. and culture became their religion yeah. and this was precisely what you say our fathers or grandfathers generation Gustav Mahler, nicht? or Mahler himself exactly yeah. Actually, the conductor of the first performance of Parsifal was a Jewish, a religious Jewish conductor, yeah, Hermann Levy. Yes, he was. And here we are in this Jewish world, in these families. They were looking for the most modern, for the, the newest cultural mm -hmm. um, achievement, and it was the work of, of Richard Wagner. My family was full of Wagner fans. And, and that they went through the Shoah, you know, some people, like in all Jewish families, some were killed, other lost family members, like all, all of us, all Jewish people in the 20th century. But the adoration of German culture never changed. I asked my father about this. After what you went through, how can you have such a, an unlimited love for Goethe, Beethoven, and all the German heroes? And he said, oh, did, this has nothing to do with it. These, these are great people, and the Nazis were idiots. And they, you know, the Nazis didn't 
limit, didn't reduce his adoration mm -hmm. for the German culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, this duality was probably a little short-sighted, because if you study the history carefully, it's deeply integrated. We know the anti-Semitism of Martin Luther. We, we see signs of anti-Semitism in the greatest German um, cultural cult figures. But still, the adoration is there. And intuitively, I feel it too. I love Beethoven, and I love um, the German culture. Yeah. And I find it absolutely terrible what what this way of this thinking did to me, to my yeah. family, to my yeah. people in general. You know, your piece, the German Jewish cantata which you just described its background i'd like to talk about musically quickly right it is made up of four parts vegan lead sleep my little bird close your eyes a german aria a yiddish aria and then what you call grabschrift epitaph of course there are many elements there's the baroque there's classical too i hear some gluck at least a little bit of a taste in the epitaph which is absolutely remarkably beautiful music, Voices of the Spirits, which I find a very interesting comparison to Orfeo at Eurydice, you know? Crowns entwining in endless quiet, the power of good rewarding us in abundance. It's marvelous words. Now, the text continues straight through. There's no stopping. Am I right? There, there isn't, because, because the whole piece is about duality, about paradox, about these two colliding uh, languages. There is the German language and the Yiddish language. Yes. And uh, it's a, it's a two-language cantata. You hear something in German, and that has its own musical style, and the Yiddish has another style. Um, why Baroque? I, I yes, I chose Baroque harmonies and ways of melodies. Kind of. Somehow, as a child, for me, it it had an association with the German culture. A little bit of Bach in it, a little bit of that. It's a very dreamy association mm -hmm. that it means means the 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 tradition of German culture to Understood. me. And why does the Abraham Zutzkever poem, where he describes his own terrible wartime um, experiences where his mother died and his feelings with his mother. It's a heartbreakingly sad um, poem. Why is that style a little bit, I, I could call it maybe the 20s, a bit of, uh, bit of Kurt Weil-like, um, Feeling. But your voice, Ivan, I want you to be very careful about this because you're talking to a composer of 50 years of writing, more, 55, and I will tell you, it's your voice. And I grew up in Yiddish music. Yeah, I grew up in, in, in symphonic music. Yes, these influences are there. Yes, these are what I'm talking about are, are the inspiration sources. Of course. 
of course. Like, for example, in the music of Béla Bartók, you can recognize traces of Bach, you can Absolutely. recognize Debussy, but yeah. it's still Béla Bartók's music. And I, I talk about this type of inspiration, where the inspiration comes from. No question about it. No, I, thank you. But l hearing it, first, the music has immediate recognition for this listener. I get it immediately. I know where you come from. I know your background. I feel it, and it is so deeply felt. I will also tell you that melodically, harmonically, and instrumentally, the orchestration, ideal. It works beautifully. Thank and you. I, no, I, but I also think that your experience in, as a practical musician has informed what you do. I know it's informed what I've done, um, no question about it, and it, it informs what you do every second, every bar. Um, I want to yes. shift. Yeah, yeah. Yes, just I, I want to comment on this. What you are talking about is a very important connection between the performer and the composer. Yes. We, we know how practical Gustav Mahler was. Everything he wrote sounds wonderful. Yes. And there, there were a f other composers who were less practical because their way of thinking is, is different. Look at the compositions of Leonard Bernstein, for example. Everything sounds immediately yes, it does. brilliant because of his experiences with instruments, orchestras, voices. Yeah. So I think here the, the two profession people have a small advantage. They do, but you certainly do. And the orchestration is gorgeous. And doing it with your people that you brought up <laughs> is phenomenal. We're going to shift to the Red Heifer, which Good. is a remarkable piece. And it was written, I think, about five, six years ago. Am I right? A little more, I think it was first performed in 13. Ah, in, and in many different locations. It, there's a wonderful YouTube broadcast with a great cast with you conducting, uh, which puts it forward with very good English uh, at the bottom, you know, script. The Red Heifer obviously is a major concept for evangelical Christians here in this country, <laughs> you may know uh, that the red heifer comes back to Jerusalem and then the second coming of Christ will come. But it's also a concept in Jewish background. And the subject, when it takes place with the blood libel in the 1880s, and then with the current madness of the right wing, far right in, in Hungary, of course, Jews living in a culture that don't want them, the significance of the red cow. And then at the end, I'm going to ask you some questions about folk music. But first, those first th things, the subject then and now, Jews living in a culture that doesn't want them, and the significance of a red cow. Please speak to that. This, this is a, a, a mysterious uh, chapter in the Torah, the, the, yes. the red heifer, um, is, is the purification uh, symbol um, you have to be purified in the, the ashes of the red heifer, which never happens because one cannot find the red heifer because yeah. the red heifer has to be perfect and, and there are many conditions which we cannot, which we don't have. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a it's a theoretical purification which is described there but never happens, and it's one of the obstacles mm -hmm. why the temple cannot be rebuilt. Um, now, 
The story here in this opera is about one character. There is one important character, the, the boy Moritz, mm -hmm. who betrays his father and betrays yes. his community. Yes, and there is the blood uh, libel case, mm -hmm. then the, the anti-Semites are looking for a crown witness and the boy decides to be that crown witness. Mm -hmm. And um, Moritz goes through the psychological process of becoming a traitor, and he goes through the second psychological process of coming to terms with what he did. And uh, what interested me very much is this betraying your own community, betraying your religion, betraying your father, Mm -hmm. Then when the when when you get the proof that it was all wrong and you see that it was in vain and you see now this is very important that your father doesn't punish you. This is the crucial moment in the opera. He doesn't the at father, all. they sit and he falls asleep the father. <laughs> yes, he's there, but he doesn't say the boy expects to get a big smack but he doesn't do it mm -hmm. he's just sitting there he doesn't say a word and this somehow starts a purification in the boy's mind mm -hmm. something happens to him where he understands this was I know the most daring um, decision in this one hour opera was it is quite finish with a 12-minute piece without any singing. Correct. Very daring, I might add. This was the very... In those 12 minutes, right. you hear the motives, you hear the, the melodies, the fragments of the melodies, mm -hmm. yes. what happened earlier, because you hear what goes through the mind of the boy. Yes. He relieves those experiences again and get somehow purified it's an unbelievable experience and also you're the, just musically what happens there let's jump into the music for a second because i heard so much different things first the entrance of esther the young girl is a gorgeous folk melody which i is original may i ask phenomenal and then no 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 it's completely my my yeah, I'm saying it's your comp composition. It's fabulous. Yes. And it sounds like it comes right out of the hills. You know, I have a compositional style, which I would call a collage technique, that I like to confront different styles with each other. And for me, musically, it was a, a, a very exciting idea mm -hmm. to, to confront the Hungarian folklore, mm. because this is what lures the boy into being a traitor. Quite. And to confront this style with the Jewish elements in the mm -hmm. music. Mm -hmm. So for me, this was the, the possibility of a, of a collage, of a, of a confrontation of two musical idioms. And it starts, in fact, with the Hungarian folklore's style, but they are all compositions by me. Fabulous. One, one element of this style is the folk song, the song sung by Esther at the beginning. 
Another element is the dances, the folkloristic dances, which, are, which is the dance music by this big party scene. These, uh, these are all inspired by Hungarian folklore. Is it the Chardas? Is that what it's called? Yes, Chardas is one of a sequence of dances. It starts with other dance forms and eventually turns into a Chardas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's fabulous. You know, and then what is absolutely beautiful after all of that, you have the, um, what I call the Freedom or Liberation Quartet of the father plus the other three defendants in the case when they're liberated. Kosut comes in and gives that great, beautiful aria, and his influence seems to liberate the men, and the judge declares this to be a false case and f has them freed. But the Jewish music you bring in there is so deeply felt and so beautifully done that the contrast also with Esther's music and then the dance music is striking. It's a great accomplishment. What I had in mind was a nigun. A nigun yeah. is um, one of those um, melodies which the Hasidic people sing sometimes without any words. It's just a bim bam. Uh, ecstasy, ecstasy, you know, dance yes, music, it, as you do it, in the dance. Show. Yes, it's something which develops. It starts maybe right. a, a little uh, less exciting and becomes more and more exciting and uh, leads to ecstasy. Now, imagine you are liberated, you just come out of a terrible prison with lots of physical pain, and you are liberated. I, it, it cannot start immediately, your, your ecstasy, but gradually, through this music, they, they, they become extremely joyous. So, this, this art form, the nigun, um, helped me. To, to write this Jewish style. It's brilliantly done, beautifully play, pl played and sung, and I, it's thrilling. Um, last discussion before we go. This has been so wonderful. What's next for you, composer Ivan Vischer? Well, this is not an easy period for me. I thought first that being uh, locked down with the, the COVID uh, pandemic, it, it's great to compose, you are at home, you are, you have time, but it doesn't work that way. Somehow, it it didn't didn't, and I don't have an explanation for it, but but it's very it's much slower than usual. Maybe this forced uh, solitude is not something which is the right thing. Um, probably other people can explain it easier than I do. It depends. I can only report that it wasn't an easy time for me. Yes. Now I am writing a slow movement for a brass quintet. Good. There is a piece called the fanfare, which I, I wrote for a brass group. Okay. And they asked me to, to write a first movement to it, so it becomes a, a longer composition of a... Good a slow, fast pattern. I have to finish it in, in about 10 days. So this, this will happen. And, um, and there are a few other small commissions, but I don't expect anything big. My last year, which was very important for me, was when I finished the Monteverdi's Orfeo, because it, it required a lot of study. Mm. I composed the the version which we don't have 
of the original first version of the libretto, mm -hmm. which I, I find much more exciting. Mm -hmm. And in that, Orfeo by Monteverdi ends with a big Bacchanal scene, and I wanted to compose that Bacchanal uh, feast. It's about 10 minutes music, completely in the style of Monteverdi's period. Hmm. So you, you are not supposed to hear where his music stops and my one starts. Wow, that's wonderful. Uh, well, you know, we've been talking about uh, three of your pieces, and now this new one, and the brass piece. And it's been a wonderful conversation. Ivan Fischer, composer, musician, fighter for human rights. Thank you for being on Interplay. This is Michael Shapiro, your host. Thank you. Great honor. <laughs>